welcome to Hall Render's Practical Solutions Podcast and Healthcare Regulatory Update. I'm your host, Alyssa James, and I'm a shareholder with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Today, we're here to discuss the upcoming end of the Declared Federal Public Health Emergency, or PHE, that ends on May 11, 2023, and the impact that it will have on the Stark Law Blanket Waivers and physician arrangements that have relied on those waivers. So let's dive right in. Joe, can you briefly tell us about what the end of the PHE and blanket waivers means for healthcare organizations and providers? Thanks, uh, Alyssa. And it's nice to be able to talk through what uh, this now that the, the public health emergency is coming to an end. Um, the waivers were initially issued back in March of 2020. They were always set to expire at the end of the public health emergency. Um, and they were really helpful for hospitals and health systems and other providers back then. If you recall, there were lots of challenging uh, times around physician contracting, around physician compensation models and staffing issues back then. Um, there was a lot of scaling up in response to the public health emergency. And so the, the waivers were issued, uh, again, back in March of 2020. Um, they were set up so they could be relied upon for financial arrangements that relate to a COVID-19 purpose and things that we were analyzing, our arrangements we were analyzing under the waivers were like physician services arrangements where um, we were pulling together emergency coverage and, and, and maybe you weren't able to get in line the documentation to support a fair market value. So one of the waivers um, included uh, payments to physicians above or below fair market value for personally performed services, for example. Uh, there were some waiver concepts around space and equipment rentals and rental charges for equipment or office space above and below uh, FMV at that time. Um, there was uh, some waiver of the medical staff and incidental benefits, uh, a, a currents cap and uh, around non-monetary compensation, some discussion of loans. And if you recall, the, the waiver document back then gave a number of examples. I think there were around like 20 of them of specific arrangements that could fall within the scope of these waivers. So it gave healthcare providers some flexibility to uh, look to the waivers, rely upon them if they needed to, and then they, they needed to document um, the, their use of those safeguards contemporaneously. Um, the, the, uh, as we even thought about it back then, it was, it was always a novel uh, concept. We didn't know how long they were going to stay in place, but they also had remained untested. And so um, we, we encouraged our, our, our clients, if they're going to rely on those waivers, to, to get something in the record. Um, then um, definitely as the public before the public health emergency came to an end. So fast forward, you know, to now the uh, waivers are, are uh, it was recently announced that they're going to end on May 11th. Um, so coming up very soon. And so that's a little background on the waivers. I saw clients mostly relying on them for the stabilization of physician compensation plans, saw them use them in some coverage situations where, uh, you know, maybe there was a hospital-based coverage arrangement that was uh, the, where the financial model didn't work as anticipated. I also saw it in the lease context, um, especially where physicians were leasing space from a healthcare uh, entity and, and needed to, to build in some flexibility in that area. So that's a, a little bit of background on the on the on the waivers. Thanks, Joe. And now that we kind of have that that background and, and lay of the land, Aaron, can you share some ways? 
that you've seen clients use the waivers and worked with clients to utilize the waivers over the past three years that they've been available? Sure. At the time that the pandemic was beginning and certainly at the, the height of the pandemic, you know, with the lockdowns and, and the restrictions on elective procedures, I was actually serving as general counsel for a large national physician group. And we, like many other healthcare providers, were experiencing revenue challenges, you know, associated with the restraints on elective procedures. And even thereafter, patients were not particularly excited about leaving their home and coming to the to the doctor's office for routine elective or preventative services. And so one of the kind of early uh, uses of the waivers that, that I personally was involved with and, and am aware of other providers as well is seeking rental abatements from landlords and hospital health system landlords where Stark was implicated. And I think there were a number of um, providers that were seeking these types of abatements or rental relief, rental reduction to ensure that they could sort of continue to operate even in light of these, these revenue challenges. We also um, saw a desire by hospitals and health systems to provide telehealth equipment to physicians and physician practices at no charge or reduced charge. Again, looking to secure services for patients who were reluctant or unable to leave their home to, to seek medical services. Many hospital and health system clients reached out to ask for advice related to you know, providing items of additional medical staff incidental benefits and other non-monetary items to their referring physicians. And sometimes these were items or services directly related to the pandemic, protective equipment, things of that nature. Other, other times it was comfort, you know, additional meals or, or having some additional amenities for providers who were spending many, many hours in the hospitals taking care of patients. One of the other waiver uses that, that we're aware of pertains to the physician-owned hospitals. As, as you likely know, the Stark Law places restrictions on the number of, of beds that a physician-owned hospital can have, and it, it can't expand beyond that, that number of beds without some exception granted by CMS. But during, during the public health emergency, there was a blanket waiver that permitted a temporary expansion of beds to, to meet inpatient hospital needs. And then finally, I would note that the, in the physician group side on the in-office ancillary services exception, there was a waiver that permitted some additional flexibility around the location requirements for that exception. And so we're aware of clients who were looking to provide items or services via mail and, or in other locations that may or may not have met the location requirements for same building or centralized building under the, the in-office exception. Yeah, thanks, Erin. I know a lot of a lot of clients that I worked with, particularly early on in the pandemic, but even still, you know, it, it seemed to center around either um, decreases in services due to you know surgery cancellations and and elective surgery terminations and things like that. Um, and but you know, wanting to make physicians whole from a from an RVU standpoint or from a compensation standpoint, as well as you know, instances where depending on the specialty, you also had physicians doing a lot of extra work and extra hours that depending on their compensation model and their original arrangement, they may or may not have gotten kind of adequate credit for, if you will. And so wanting to, to increase their compensation for that work and having, having the waivers to rely on for situations where maybe that, that additional compensation could have exceeded fair market value or even just having the comfort of the waiver without having to go out and 
seek a new opinion um, at times when things were moving so quickly. I know a lot of clients were were really appreciative of, of that flexibility and, and having having those opportunities. So kind of along those lines, Joe, can can you tell us a little bit more about what you think providers and healthcare organizations that have utilized any of these blanket waivers in the past, what what they should be doing now to prepare for the termination of the public health emergency and how they can kind of pivot or 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 evaluate any changes they need to make to their arrangements. Yeah, sure, Alyssa. And um, I think, first of all, it's important to think, and, and Aaron and, and you, Alyssa, already described some situations where, you know, you, you went through the regulatory analysis back then. And it, if we all kind of go back in time, I don't think it was a free-for-all back then. You know, there were situations that healthcare organizations were um, encountering, and they were doing the analysis. They were deciding whether they needed to rely on the waiver. And so, you know, I think it's important to, to know that this isn't starting, like right now, getting our a sense of what has been, what occurred is, isn't it maybe as heavy a lift as, as we might think, because there already is going to be a record uh, back there in time when you made that decision. So um, a lot of strong analysis was developed back um, as the, the pandemic unfolded. So it, as, as healthcare organizations think about winding down and reassessing, um, again, understanding that what, what occurred in the past is, is important to go back and start to think about and review that internal documentation to analyze the timing, what, what actions were taken, um, how the, the disbursements of compensation were handled. Um, it's likely you relied on an existing exception or safe harbor. Maybe you didn't even need to look to the waivers. Maybe you were able to get comfortable um, looking to starker kickback, and maybe that's already reflected in the record. Um, if you go back, it you also may have the luxury now of saying, and look, it fit. It also fit in line with. Uh, with the, the waivers as well. Um, if you did rely on a waiver, I think it's important to have in the record how that aligned with the COVID-19 purpose. There were six of them identified um, in, the, in the guidance. Um, ideally, you'd want your arrangement and what actions you took to uh, fit within one of the defined waivers or, or one of the actual examples that the government gave. Of course, many won't. But I think to the extent your documentation and what actions you took um, uh, were framed and aligned with, with those waiver concepts, the better off you're going to be. Um, and then you want to make sure you've developed some separate documentation that described you know, the, the, the COVID-19 purpose and the scope of the arrangement. There wasn't one way um, to do it back then. Like I said, maybe you have something in the record that you can point to. Uh, maybe you developed an amendment and that amendment captures uh, this. Maybe there's a, a log. I've, I've heard of organizations that developed a sort of a COVID log that, that just identifies um, in sequence the actions they took, but uh, you know, kind of outlining what actions you took over, over time, I, I think is important. Um, and now that the public health emergency is coming to an end, um, you still have time to develop that documentation. You should be thinking about what to do with existing arrangements where you're still relying on the waiver. Does it make sense to wind that down? Does it make sense to pivot into some other um, uh, rationale or regulatory analysis to support staying in that arrangement? You just wanna be clear with everyone on the team 
uh, your legal team and your compliance team, just where is your defensibility sitting with where you were? And, and if you're going to stay in that arrangement going forward, what defensibility are you going to rely on? Those are just some thoughts, Alyssa. Great. Thanks, Joe. Aaron, what have what have you seen or or thought through with respect to, you know, I know there were blanket waivers that applied specifically to physician-owned hospitals and their ability to um, temporarily expand their their number of beds or their footprint um, in response to the pandemic. Um, what are what are folks doing in that space to to make sure they get back in compliance with the moratorium on expansion absent the waivers? Sure. So I think this one, this is an important one because the risk is significant. Um, as I noted, the, the exception for ownership in a physician hospital requires that the hospital not have expanded its, its number of, of beds beyond a, beyond a certain threshold. And so if during the pandemic, the hospital was relying on the waivers to do so to convert beds you know, from, from observations to inpatient or otherwise, it will be very important to have those beds switch back and take it off your license if that's required. It will vary a bit state to state in terms of what the process is, but certainly want to make sure that that's done prior to the end of the PHE so that there's no violation, which could potentially implicate all of the referrals by your physician owners. So I think this is a an important one. And given that it may take some, some interaction with the state to adjust the license, I think this is one that that we would recommend folks, you know, sort of get, get moving on. There are in addition, you know, to the unwind provisions that that Joe mentioned, there are some individual waiver abilities or flexibilities. CMS is, has provided a, a process by which providers can request a waiver under, um, you know, kind of an ongoing waiver post PHE. So that may be something for providers to consider if there is something that that's not a, easily able to be unwound or if there's some other sort of justification for something that might satisfy CMS's requirements to permit an ongoing waiver, that may be something else that that parties want to consider. There is a specific to physician-owned hospitals, there is an exception process that CMS has for those entities. And again, that may be that may be an avenue to consider, but given the timing, I think it's important to start thinking about can we convert these beds back to OB status or are there other things that we can do to get ourselves back to pre-pandemic bed counts in order not to violate Stark. Absolutely, yeah, and that that approval process from CMS for for possible expansion of physician-owned hospitals can be can be lengthy. So certainly not something that that's probably going to be in place before the end of the PHE, but but something that folks could could look to pursue on a parallel track while while temporarily or at least for the time being. Um, reducing those numbers back down. So Aaron and Joe, what, what can providers do now if they're not ready to revert certain arrangements back to their pre-waiver status? I know we've touched on this a little bit already, but are there any new or creative options available that provide some flexibility for certain types of arrangements um, in instances where, where maybe providers have modified or entered into new arrangements with physicians that they don't want to end um, just because the PHE is, is terminating? Well, one, one potential option there, Alyssa, relates to a new exception. Uh, Hall Render worked with, with Congress to, to get a new exception to Stark passed for physician wellness programs. And it's a fairly broad exception that's available to entities with the formal medical staff, and, and they're able to offer certain mental health or behavioral health improvements or maintenance programs 
to physicians in a geographic area that are designed to improve or maintain or prevent mental health issues, including you know, suicide prevention, substance abuse disorders, and other things of that nature. I think you know, during the course of the pandemic, we've heard a lot about, about burnout by healthcare providers. And I think these mental health concerns can be ongoing. And just because the public health emergency is ending, you know, these, these concerns are not. And so this is one area where CMS has established a process for a provider to establish via policy a bona fide program to help prevent and, and avoid and treat these issues that are that are being encountered by their medical staff. And there's this has to be substantive. There's got to be evidence-based, uh, evidence basis for the program. It's got to be administered by a qualified healthcare professional. The board needs to approve this. So there are some structural and procedural requirements in order to put one of these programs in place, but that may be an area where providers could consider, you know, sort of codifying or formalizing some of the things that they've been doing during the pandemic with under the protection of the other blanket waivers with this new exception. And, and the new exception is, is available for programs that went into effect beginning at the end of December of 2022. So again, it's a, a fairly new program. Yeah, and I would add that, um, you know, and I think that's a great example uh, that Aaron just gave. Also, there's some some other new opportunities under um, some recent rule changes. Um, under the, the Stark overhaul, the government uh, gave us a new exception for limited remuneration um, arrangements. So arrangements where uh, when it was rolled out, our arrangements uh, at $5,000 or below $5,000 um, would be would not be a stark violation if you have a services arrangement, even if it's not documented, um, as long as that um, services arrangement uh, met the big three, so does not exceed fair market value, um, is commercially reasonable and doesn't take into account referrals. So this would this is a really helpful exception if, if we do have... Um, uh, situations like we had during the pandemic where you need to ramp up coverage very quickly for uh, uh, you know emergency situation. And as long as that doesn't exceed $5,700 actually under inflation now, um, that's going to be a protected arrangement. So that's a, an area where um, I think healthcare organizations could put in place some type of a policy or a, an expectation that if they do get in an emergency situation, they could look to this a limited remuneration exception uh, to help protect that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of an offshoot of that. I mentioned earlier the some of the exceptions or the uh, the waivers that were issued got into um, arrangements being above or below fair market value for professional services. Um, I think the government was trying to say, look, you could have a, an emergency situation here where you have to get coverage in place quickly, and, and maybe that's going to push the limits of fair market value. Uh, the government also came out in the most recent rulemaking and said, um, with respect to fair market value, that extenuating, extenuating circumstances are relevant for determining fair market value. So I do think that you know, some of that commentary that the government came out with around the rule change would play right into um, the pandemic. If you have an emergency coverage situation, you do have to pay higher rates to get that coverage in place. Um, I think that's gonna be, you're gonna have some, some uh, protection potentially um, under the fair market value standard as well. So um, those are just two, you know, the limited remuneration exception and the greater flexibility around fair market value are two areas that I think 
um, will be helpful if they have to revert uh, to arrangements to pre pre waiver status. Uh, uh, Lisa, oh, I think those are both both really good call outs of of some new flexibilities that that came about um, while we were in in the midst of the pandemic. So things that didn't necessarily exist or options that didn't exist pre pandemic that hopefully continue some of that flexibility that providers have had during the PHE. Another kind of framework that I think could be useful for, for some providers is, you know, the establishment or expansion of value-based enterprises, value-based arrangements where they can partner with, you know, physicians and other organizations to effectuate some of those value-based purposes. But I think a lot of a lot of the COVID-related arrangements or expansions of arrangements um, for COVID purposes, you know, are things that could very easily dovetail into that value-based framework on a go-forward basis. And, and those exceptions under Stark and, and Safe Harbors under AKS um, give providers a lot of flexibility, I think, that they may not have with, with some of the other Stark law exceptions. So there's a lot of resources on, on the Hall Render website about value-based arrangements that for anyone who's interested in those can, can look to, to set those up without a lot of downside financial risk to the physicians. There are some monitoring and, and things like that that are required that may take a little bit to, to get in place and to effectuate. But I think, I think all of those options discuss the wellness exception, limited remuneration and value-based exceptions um, hopefully we'll give providers continued flexibility even after the waivers are no longer available. Um, Joe, Aaron, any final thoughts for, for our audience today um, with respect to the end of the PHE and its impact on these blanket waivers? Uh, I just think uh, doing the analysis sooner rather than later is going to be important. So conduct an audit. Um, you know, it's it's likely your compliance team may be made up of people that weren't even part of the team at the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, do that audit. Contemporaneous documentation is, is the best situation to be in, but I think even having documentation now before the public health emergency over, is over is, is critical uh, because you're not going to want to be developing a record down the road when you have some kind of an enforcement type action. So doing it now, um, is, it's the right time to, to unpack this. Um, while you still have the opportunity, but we wish all, uh, we know that everyone had the best of intentions during the public health emergency, and they had to move quickly, and, and now is an, is an opportunity in the next um, few weeks to uh, get these audits in place and uh, to get the documentation um, solidified. And I, I would echo Joe's comment around the timing. You know, these things always take longer than, you know, you might think they would in terms of getting updated fair market value in place and, and getting documentation signed. If there's an arrangement that's not documented in compliance with, with a Stark law that needs to be post-pandemic. So I think thinking about identifying those arrangements and getting all of the I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of the supporting documentation, amendments, agreements in place, so that you're, you're well-suited to have an arrangement that fully complies with the law as of May 11th. I think those are all really good takeaways for the audience. And thank you all for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about the Stark Law Blanket Waiver Termination or other fraud and abuse and compliance issues more generally, please visit our website at hallrender.com or feel free to reach out to Aaron Jummy, Joe Wolf, or myself, Alyssa James, or your regular Hallrender attorney. Please remember that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. Thanks.